If you're a serious legislator, you learn as much as you can about your colleagues, particularly those who were influential in the area where you want to work. You learn about their political situation at home. You learn about their personalities. You learn how to ingratiate yourself with them and how you can help them and make them value your friendship. And that becomes particularly important when you move up. And by the time I became chairman of the committee that wrote the Dodd-Frank bill, uh, I spent all my time, I had a certain number of Democrats on my committee because by then things had gotten very partisan. My main job was to make the members of the committee my friend and to make them want to make me happy. But, and the way you do that is, Anytime I could do a favor for them, I did. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 117 of the So This My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And in case you didn't know, Steamy is now open to sponsorship. So if you're interested in sharing your story, what you're building, then do just drop a note at sothismywhy at gmail.com. And let's just have a chat. And today we have Steamy's very first U.S. congressman, Barney Frank. Now, Barney was a member of the House of Representatives for over 30 years. He was also the chairman of the U.S. Financial Services Committee, the Frank behind the Dodd-Frank Act, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Now, how did Barney end up in politics? What does it take to thrive despite being gay? What led to his decision to come out of the closet with an explosive Boston Globe article? And also, what of his views of the SVB meltdown, given his role in the Dodd-Frank Act? his role as a director at Signature Bank, his views of Trump and Trumple's steel skin, and the upcoming U.S. presidential elections. Well, I guess you just have to listen to find out. After all, the New York Times did describe Barney Frank as one of the person most responsible for overhauling the financial regulation of the 2008 economic crisis. So clearly, you can't miss this episode. Now, are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I was actually physically born literally three miles from the Statue of Liberty. Bayonne, New Jersey is just literally three miles south of the uh, Statue of Liberty between New York and New Jersey. I lived a pretty uh, conventional middle-class life. It was defined in part by the fact that I'm Jewish. I lived in an, a largely Catholic community where, where those of us who were Jewish were a minority, but it wasn't an oppressive situation. My father owned a truck stop. My mother kept our house. I had three siblings, still do, fortunately. And I went to public schools, public high school. You know, I lived a fairly normal teenage life. I thought it was interesting you said that your dad ran the truck shop, as you said, and it was a place that was totally corrupt. What does that mean? Well, the uh, city of Jersey City, where my father had the truck stop, was dominated by an alliance of corrupt politicians, the mafia, and a couple of corrupt unions. I'm a great union supporter, but back then, uh, people have seen the movie On the Waterfront, don't know what I'm talking about. Both the Teamsters Union and the Longshoremen's Union in the, in the New York area were very closely tied in with the mafia. And while my father was not an official member, as the man running a truck stop, which was, of course, tied with, with the uh, trucking industry, 
uh, he had associations with uh, with organized crime. But even so, your parents still instilled in you the belief that the government was doing good. How did they do so? Back then, in the 50s, I was born in 1940, so my teen years in the 50s, uh, one thing, there were actually two things that differentiated me from my friends, my peers. One, I was very interested in politics. I remember watching political events on television, the, the hearings involving Senator Joseph McCarthy and his war with the army. I was 14. Uh, I remember being very much outraged by the murder of Emmett Till. There's recently a movie about that now, a young black kid who was my age, beaten to death by bigots uh, in Mississippi. And the bigots turned out to include some law enforcement officers. Um, so I started that at an early age. Uh, but I never thought that I would myself have a career in politics because of the other thing that set me apart from my peers. Uh, I realized at 13 that I'm gay. And uh, back then, this is 1953, uh, being gay was, was a, a pretty tough thing. So I just kept it a secret. And uh, I later wrote a book in which, in my memoir, in which I said, you know, when I was 13 and a couple of years after that, I thought, well, it'd be nice going to politics, but I, I could never succeed politically because I'm gay and that's very unpopular. And to succeed in politics, you have to be well-liked. Things changed. By the time I retired, 58 or so years after that, things had flipped. Being a politician had become unpopular uh, and being gay was much, uh, much more accepted. In my last couple of years, um, I helped pass what's known as the Dodd-Frank Act to regulate the financial system. And uh, I got married to my husband, the only member of Congress still to have a same-sex marriage. And what the pollsters told me was that in, uh, 19, in 2012, my marrying my husband, Jim, was more popular than passing the Dodd-Frank Act. That was a kind of reversal. Uh, uh, being gay became much more socially acceptable than being a congressman. So back then when it wasn't socially acceptable, what do you think you were going to do with your life? Because I noticed that you went to Harvard Law School. So do you think, I guess I'll be a lawyer then if I can't be a politician? That's a very good question. It, it dictated it. I had originally thought, well, I'll be a lawyer and get into politics. But then while I was in undergraduate at Harvard, I looked around, well, what is it like for a gay man being a politician, knowing I was going to uh, and I wasn't going to have a double life, uh, pretending to be straight and getting married. Uh, that wasn't a possibility anyway. I decided at the suggestion of one of my faculty members, no, you know what, instead of being a lawyer, I'm going to be a professor of, of, of political science. I like politics. And the university is a safe haven, relatively, for a gay man. So rather than go out into the world as a gay man trying to disguise that and practice law, I'll become a professor. Uh, at the time I made that decision, it was the early 60s, well, I graduated in 62. Um, John Kennedy had begun to, uh, the practice of hiring high ranking, powerful academics to serve in his administration. McGeorge um, Bundy, John Kenneth Galbraith, Arthur Schlesinger, Jerome Weiser, et cetera. So I decided, okay, here's what, I'll become a professor, I'll be doing what I like, reading and writing about politics. But as a university professor, that will also give me a chance 
to participate in campaigns, to be an advisor to politicians. And you know, you're, you're an academic, you get a two year leave of absence. So I became a graduate student looking for a PhD in political science with the goal of becoming a professor, sort of following the model of a guy I've always admired enormously, John Kenneth Galbraith, and go back and forth between academia and stints as an advisor. Uh, and that, it seemed to me, would be the best way to deal with being gay and indulging my uh, great obsession with being politically active. Where did this obsession come from? Why were you so determined to be in politics, even though you couldn't be at the front lines at the time you thought? I don't know. And that's a very good question. I'm asked it. There's a very interesting book. It was an oral history with uh, former Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter. It's called Felix Frankfurter Reminisces, and I recommend it to people. And he was asked where his interest in justice, et cetera, came from. He said, you know, I've never been able to put myself on the couch. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things. I don't know why I'm gay. I do know why I was Jewish. My parents were Jewish. But why I had that interest in politics, I I do not know. I mean, I can tell you I am glad and I I justify it because my interest in politics has been as a means of making this a a better world, a fairer world, a world in which there is less suffering. So I, I will say I feel morally justified in the kind of politics I practice. But why I chose that rather than others, I don't know. I guess there's one one secondary factor I can give. Politics involves the skills that I am good at and not the things that I'm terrible at. I'm very good with words. I speak well, I think quickly. I am terrible with things. I have been in a lifelong war with inanimate objects. I break things, probably because I'm left-handed too, by the way, I'm a member of every minority. And um, my husband knows if I start to try and fix something, he immediately intervenes because I will make it worse. I don't mean to, but that's the way it is. So uh, I went into a, uh, a profession in which verbal facility is a great thing. The other thing I have, and this sounds like a joke, but it, it may be, but it's also serious. I did change from being a professor doing politics part-time to doing politics full-time. I got an invitation from a man who uh, became the mayor of Boston in 1967. He said, why don't you come work for me? Was I it Kevin not- White? This is Kevin, Kevin White. I've got to finish my uh, PhD thesis. I said, I'll go to work for you temporarily. My temporary stint with him turned into a profession change. And here's the reason. And this sounds like a joke, but I have a fairly short attention span. And that's a real handicap if you're trying to write a scholarly thesis. Uh, On the other hand, if you are in politics as a generalist, not as the specialist in transportation or healthcare or some, some particular area, but if you are a general assistant to an elected official, an executive, if you are a legislator, in the course of a day, you will have to deal with at least six or eight separate subjects. And that gives me a comparative advantage. If we all have uh, 20 minutes to think about something, I generally will come out very high. If we all have four days to work on it, I'll while away a lot of that and lose any advantage I might have had. So I literally decided I was much better at being an assistant to the mayor with a broad range of responsibilities than uh, being a serious, committed scholar. So this was 1968. You were the chief of staff. What were some yeah. of the highlights under Kevin? Hey, 
in, it was in the, actually December of 67, the mayor, Mayor White said, come to work for me. I said, I got to go finish my thesis. He said he was very effective. He said, look, you're a big liberal. You've got all these liberal things you want me to do with race and poverty. Um, if you go back to Harvard, I'm going to have a harder time doing it. You're one of the few people I have around me who has that commitment. Well, that got me. And wasn't it during this time when you were working for Kevin, you also met Congressman Joe Moakley? What was that like? I did meet Joe Moakley after I went to work for Kevin White, and he became one of the people I most admired and enjoyed working with. But I met Kevin White in 1967 through a radio broadcast, a great one, and Christopher Leiden. He, he and his wife, his wife worked for Kevin White. They lived next to Kevin White. And I knew him. He was a reporter for the Boston Globe. I knew him at Harvard. And he recommended me to White. So that, that was the connection to go to Kevin White. You said at the time that Joe was running as an independent and that was very smart and courageous. I wonder yeah. because... By the way, you asked me what it was like working for Kevin White. It was a maelstrom. It was, um, I worked, uh, I didn't know a lot when I started, but I, I wound up, you know, doing like 13 and 14 hour days. I was overwhelmed. It was extraordinarily rewarding because I thought we were doing good things, but I, it was also exhausting. And the cause of it, you know, some people lose weight when they're stressed. I overeat when I'm stressed. So, uh, I uh, ballooned. I went to 270 pounds. I'm five foot. I was five foot ten at the time. So it was very stressful, and it was very rewarding in the in the fundamental moral sense. But it was tough personally, and of course, added to that was a strain of being totally closeted about my being gay. Although I was helped by the fact that this is before the Stonewall riots, and so that being gay gay issues were not a factor. But as to Mowgli, there was a woman who was. A, terrible racist named Louise Day Hicks in Boston, who started a political career, almost got elected mayor, she and Kevin White ran against each other. In fact, that's how I came to work for White. I didn't know him very well, but I did know he was infinitely preferable to this bigot who was running against him, and I wanted to help him defeat her. And she lost to White, but she had enough popularity to get elected to Congress in 1970. And the problem we had was this. In a primary in the North, you don't need a, more than 50% of the vote to win. If there are six candidates and the one who gets 37% gets more than anybody else, he or she wins. It's not what we call a runoff of the top two. And the thing was this, there was going to be a white liberal and a black candidate and Louise A. Hicks. So she was always going to get her 40% plus and the other two were going to split the, the other 60 but Mowgli correctly figured out, he ran against her as a Democrat in 1970 and lost because he split the vote with, with a couple of black candidates. So in 1972, he stayed out of the primary when she won it, as she could always do because of this split in the opposition. He ran against her in the final as an independent, very clever strategy, and he beat her. Of course, the, an hour after he won as an independent, he announced he was a Democrat and remained a Democrat all his life. Wasn't your sister also, Anne Louise also involved and she used some guerrilla warfare to help Joe as well? My uh, older sister, Anne Lewis, little side here of interest, she was married to a man named Gerald Lewis in 1956. They divorced about 12 years later and she since remarried, but she kept the name uh, Lewis for an obvious reason. If she went back to her maiden name, what would it be? 
Her first Anne name Frank. is Anne. Anne Frank. She would have gone back to being Anne Frank. She was Anne Frank when she was born in 1937, but by 1960, being Anne Frank would have been awkward. She is a brilliant woman. If we did not have sexist discrimination in America, she would have had an even more impressive political career. She had a very good one. She was press secretary to Bill Clinton. She's very close to Hillary Clinton. She was the first, I think, woman to be the executive director of the Democratic National Committee. But, but she was held back. She's two years older than I. So she was held back in the 60s and 70s because it was a bad time for women. She was one of the leading women to be actively engaged in politics and has had, as I said, a very important career. It would have been better, I think, if she hadn't been discriminated against as all women were until fairly recently. It sounds like politics was in your family blood in spite of all the bad Very good question. Not as a practice, but in conversation. We read the newspapers. We followed it closely. Uh, Both my parents were active, energetic, liberal Democrats. And we talked about it. uh, There was a, the New York Post, interesting today, is a very right-wing paper run by Rupert Murdoch, although it's a right-wing paper that has turned on Donald Trump. But back then in the 50s and 60s, the New York Post was the, one of the leading liberal left organs in America. And we would fight over the New York Post, you know, who gets to read it first. And there was a great columnist, a man named Murray Kempton, just an extraordinarily talented guy. And uh, so, yeah, the, the politics were very liberal. 1972, again, you were also elected to the state legislature. How did your family react to that? They must have been really proud. Oh, they were very happy, yeah, uh, very, very happy. Although, interestingly, you asked before about the corruption in Boston. Yeah. The first political job I had was to become Mayor Kevin White's assistant in 1968 because he thought I'd done a very good job helping him in the campaign. So I called my mother. My father, sadly, had died at the age of 53 from the heart condition, which I have inherited from him. And, you know, we complain about medical costs and they're high, but we are buying a degree of medicine that is just qualitatively way ahead of what we had. I inherited the condition of not enough good cholesterol from which my father died at 53. In a week, I'll be 83. And what's happened is that medicine has so improved both the surgical techniques and the medications that, as I said, I've already outlived my father by 30 years with the same condition. So he had died, but my mother and my first, my three siblings, were alive. But when I told my mother in 1968, she was still living in New Jersey, in the midst of what was then a very corrupt political system, it's gotten much better. And I told her very proudly that I was going to be the chief assistant to the mayor. And she said, reflecting the area in which she lived, oh, that's wonderful. I'm happy for you. But if you don't mind, I'm not going to tell people. Because in uh, Bayonne in Jersey City, Working for the mayor was almost like pleading guilty to corruption. So she didn't want the newspaper, the local newspaper, which my uncle was the uh, sports editor, my uncle Rosie, who wrote Rosie's Roundup, married to her sister. That's how different it was. But by 1972, I mean, they became proud when I did things. I remember one of the first things I did early on of impact was to write the statement Kevin White gave on the night Martin Luther King was murdered. You asked what it was like. Three months into my being the mayor's chief assistant in my first non-academic job, Martin Luther King was murdered. And he did a wonderful job of of, uh, relating to the anguish in the uh, black community 
And I wrote the statement and I, I sent it very proudly to my mother said I wrote this. So that became that, that switch. And by 1972, when I uh, ran for the legislature, yeah, my siblings were all very helpful in the campaign. And my mother was very proud. And as a matter of fact, my mother, after I got elected in 1972, she was still living in New Jersey. At that point, all four of her children were in the Boston area, or two have since left, and her husband had, had died. So she moved up. My mother moved up from Bayonne to Massachusetts. By the way, she then, she got involved in my campaign when I ran for Congress. She made a commercial, which was so popular that she soon became the leader of an elderly organization. And for the last 15 years of her life, until she died at 92, she was a, a major player in Massachusetts politics, not having previously been politically involved. But uh, the family was not only proud, but throughout my career, enormously supportive. I read that when you were running, at the time, it was a solidly Republican for generations, and you were clearly very liberal. And then you were working with your family to run this campaign. What was that whole trail-like experience? Well, for instance, my, my younger sister, who is not herself, but is active in politics, um, she's been an educator. But for 32 years, she was the treasurer of my campaign, handling tens of millions of dollars and becoming an expert in election law. Uh, my brother took leave of absence twice from his job to be my campaign manager. My, my older sister used her own significant political connections on my behalf. And then my mother, as I said, in 1982, I was running for re-election. And I was running against a uh, incumbent Republican congressman. It was one of those things where we call redistricting, where two inc incumbent members of Congress have to run against each other. And she was a woman who was the senior woman in Congress. She was a more moderate Republican. And we ran against each other. I won. I thought I was going to lose. But she got hit by the Reagan recession. And in the forerunner of what's happened now, she had been a more liberal Republican. But when Reagan took over, the conservatives really took over the Republican Party. And so she was getting pressure to vote with Reagan on things that she knew were unpopular in her own district, my district. But she was afraid that the conservative Republicans would beat her in a primary. We've seen that here in America most recently, where the, the pro-Trump Republicans win the primary, but they're weaker in the final election. And that she, she had to be a Reaganite to win the primary, but that was not popular in 1982 in the final election. But one of the problems I had was being gay. She knew I was gay, but she didn't want to say it. And I had supported... By the way, in my first year in the state legislature, I filed two bills, which were sort of outliers at the time, but I've since been vindicated. One was to legalize marijuana. The other was to end discrimination based on sexual orientation. Those were both filed 51 years ago. I was kind of uh, advanced in that. But um, she was sort of hinting at my being gay and mm -hmm. noting that I didn't have any family. I was kind of not in touch with family values. So we made a commercial of a, an older woman, handsome, white-haired older woman, talking about how I uh, would protect Social Security against the Republicans. And at the end, she says with a kind of shy smile, in case you're wondering why I'm so sure that, that Barney will be protecting us older people, he's my son. It was my mother who was charming and attractive and a little bit nervous. And that transformed her into a media star. <laughs> uh, she's a very intelligent woman, although she 
played graduating high school in the depression, was never able to get a higher education. So she became, as I said, a, a leader. But I had my whole family. We were kind of, in terms of a campaign apparatus, I guess we were minor league Jewish Kennedys. It sounds like family was integral to you having a successful start into the political world. And then it turned out, as I said, and this is the happiest thing about my life is this. It turns out that I am very good at those things I most enjoy doing. And the things I'm terrible at, I didn't want to do in the first place. Because uh, I, don't, I don't believe that there are people who are you know, brilliant across the board or talented across the board. I think everybody's a mix of strengths and weaknesses. And happily for me, my strengths and my interests coincided. And so it turns out, yeah, I was good at politics. Having a short attention span, being verbally uh, felicitous, those are, those are the assets you need in politics. I also benefited because I grew up in a working class town, working in my father's truck stop, and then went to Harvard. And I had a pretty good exposure to a wide social background. And of course, when you're running for office, particularly when you're running for Congress, where your constituency is a half a million people or more, you've got the full range of, of humanity to deal with. And I was uh, well positioned to deal with a whole range of people. I believe 1980, when you first ran for office to the U.S. House of Representatives, you described it as your toughest race. Why was that? Well, in 1980, when I ran for Congress, it's interesting, by the way, the reason I ran for Congress, I, I had been in the state legislature from a very unusual district. It was downtown Boston. It was uh, more liberal. It was what we later came to call yuppies. It was very atypical for Boston. I wasn't from Massachusetts. At the time I ran, almost everybody elected in Massachusetts had been born there and their parents had born there. They had deep roots. They were uh, on the Democratic side, generally either Irish or Italian in, in heritage. And um, I never thought I would go beyond being a state legislator. And then as I, it turned out I was good at being a state legislator and I was attracting a lot of attention from other liberals, particularly, by the way, because that was a time when liberalism was starting to get hurt. And, you know, here's an interesting thing, the freedom of nothing left to lose. Being gay and Jewish, I didn't think I had much of a political future. I thought, well, I'm here in the legislature. I'm probably not going to be able to win anything else. So I was able to take positions that other people who might have been liberal were afraid to take. And pretty soon, um, I was the leading liberal because the others were defecting. I, you know, I never thought I would I agreed in 1972 to be a sponsor of the gay rights bill. Turned out I became the only sponsor at first because everybody else was afraid. So as a result of not thinking I had a chance to go further, I became the leader of, of this faction, which was, I guess I became the leader by default. And then it occurred to me, well, you know what? Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna be a Senator, win the whole state, but there were a couple of congressional districts where liberals uh, were in sufficient number so I could win. The problem was they were both occupied. One occupied by uh, former Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, a great man, a great friend. I lived in his district. It would have been ridiculous to think about running against him. And this is in the 70s. He ultimately quit in 1986, but I would not have stayed in the legislature that long. The other district, about a mile away from where I lived, was another very liberal district, including uh, 
two communities, the city of Newton, the town of Brookline, large number of, of Jewish people and of liberals, but it also had a congressman. He was much younger. His name was Robert Trent. He was a Jesuit priest. And of course, there was no way, uh, was always supportive of him. And then somebody took a step that directly resulted in my being a congressman, uh, Pope John Paul II, because Father Drennan, the Jesuit priest, was fairly liberal, wouldn't vote to ban abortion. He said, I'm against abortion. I'm not going to impose that legally on others. So the Pope ordered him not to run again in 1980. And having taken uh, oaths of poverty, chastity, and obedience as a Jesuit, which he believed in, he stepped aside, heartbroken, but, but obedient. Uh, and I won. Uh, he later said that he always wanted to ask the Pope how he felt about uh, ordering a, a Catholic priest to leave and having him be replaced by a gay Jew, but they never let him near the Pope to ask him. But uh, that's how I got elected. But I was an odd candidate. I had moved into the district. I was from New Jersey. And most important, 1980 was a very good year for the Republicans. If you go back, 1980, we have in America what we call wave elections. Those are elections that happen maybe every 10 or 12 years in which one party just overwhelms the other, where individual merits of candidates become much less important than, than feelings about party. In 1980, with Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter being unpopular, that was a Republican wave election. Uh, that was the year the Republicans took over the United States Senate in the majority for the first time, I think, in, in uh, decades. And uh, a lot of Democrats lost in the House. We narrowly held the House majority, but, but, but we lost a lot. So 1980, I had all those personal problems of being an unusual candidate, lacking some of the normal strengths, and it being a Republican year. So uh, I won both the primary, the Democratic primary, uh, on my personal weaknesses, and uh, finally an election on those plus the uh, Republican year, I won in both cases, I got 52%. That's the lowest. I won by 4%. And every subsequent election, including the last one, which was also kind of tough, I won by double digit percentages. What was it like arriving in Congress? I heard in one interview, you said that it's like arriving at high school as a freshman, which I yeah. find it. Being in a legislator is a very unique thing. As I said, it happens to be one of the areas where I have some strength. Yeah. Um, here's the deal about being in, 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 in a parliament, Congress, whatever. In most of our activities, where we are formally working together in a legally binding way, one, or, one of two principles is, is involved. One is hierarchy. There's a boss and the boss can give you orders and the boss can hire you and fire you, etc. The other is money. In a lot of our dealings with each other, I'll pay you to do this, you'll pay me to do that. When you are a member of a legislative body, your relationships with the other 30, 200, 500 in the Indian uh, parliament, your relations are wholly informal. That is, there's no hierarchy in the House of Representatives in the sense that yeah, the speaker is more important than a freshman in the other party. But when I was a member of Congress for 32 years, no one could tell me what to do. My boss for several hundred thousand people back home, and they couldn't get together to give me a direct order. No one could fire me. 
and no one could say you must vote this way or that way. They could put pressure, but it's qualitatively different. I had no boss, which means then that, and we can't bribe each other. That wouldn't make sense. It's illegal and you'd pretty soon run out of money even if you wanted to. So what happens is your relationships, your ability to be influential depends on your ability to make friends, to make other people want to follow you. And it's very much like trying to be popular in high school. You want to get a reputation for doing the job well, but not too well. If you look like a little smarmy, then people don't like you. And that, as I said, it's obviously not an exact or even close parallel, but it's the closest I can think of. That is, trying to become influential in Congress is more like trying to be popular in high school than any other two things. I would love to delve deeper into that because I imagine lots of people listening who are working in large companies, they also need to figure this out. How do I rise through the hierarchy, have good relations with my colleagues? You clearly figured yeah. it out. How do right. you be popular? No, you, you, the, the point is, how do you get along with your peers? Yeah. I mean, with your superiors and, and your subordinates, it's a different thing. But getting along with your peers requires more personal skills than anything else. Um, means for me, what it, what it meant was, particularly as I moved into more of a leadership position, um, I wanted to get other people to agree with me when I couldn't order them to do it. Well, in some cases, it's easy because you happen to agree. You know, you can work with the people who are other liberals or conservatives <clears throat> or whatever you are. So the question then is, how do you get people who don't necessarily agree with you to agree? One, what I found was, Give them a stake in your friendship, which means it doesn't mean you trade. That doesn't work. You want to, that bit wears off. You try to be as helpful to them as possible. If you're a serious legislator, you learn as much as you can about your colleagues, particularly those who are influential in the area where you want to work. You learn about their political situation at home. You learn about their personalities. You learn how to ingratiate yourself with them and how you can help them and make them value your friendship. And that becomes particularly important when you move up. And by the time I became chairman of the committee that wrote the Dodd-Frank bill, uh, I spent all my time, I had a certain number of Democrats on my committee because by then things had gotten very partisan. My main job was to make the members of the committee my friend and to make them want to make me happy. But, and the way you do that is anytime I could do a favor for them, I did. I told the people working me, that's the way you do it. By the way, if people want to see this technique and read about it, there's a great biography of former President Lyndon Johnson by Robert Caro, C-A-R-O. And when he was minority leader of the Senate, I became the minority leader in effect of my committee. And one summer I went to Cape Verde, I represented in Congress a lot of people from the island of the Republic of Cabo Verde. And um, they lived in the district I represented. And I drank some water I shouldn't have drank, so I spent a lot of time reading. And um, I uh, read this biography and I read particularly the part about how Johnson operated when he was the leader of the minority. And I, I that's one of the two patterns that I followed in my career where I thought there were lessons uh, to be learned. And someone once said to me when I disagreed with, I had the great privilege of working very closely with one of the great leaders in American history, Nancy Pelosi. 
without question, extraordinarily one of the great leaders. And um, uh, at one point, though, I disagreed with her on something. And it was high profile. And someone said to me, well, listen, you know, aren't you afraid that the, the speaker actually then was is going gonna, is gonna to be mad at you? And I said, well, let me tell you, I've learned this as being chairman of the committee. I am not afraid of my leader. I am afraid of my followers. They're the one uh, on whose allegiance I have to count. So I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that my followers felt that I had their interests at heart and that it was in their interest to keep me in that position precisely because of that. How do you ensure that you always knew what was happening on the ground? Because there's so many people with scats at your... Very good question. By ignoring almost everything else. <laughs> one of the things that I, you know, the more you know one thing, the less you know everything else. It was a great, again, I like literary analogies. At one point in a Sherlock Holmes story, Dr. Watson discovers that Holmes does not know some basic scientific fact, maybe that the earth revolves around the sun or whatever. And Watson said, Holmes, I'm astonished uh, at your ignorance on these things. And Holmes said, well, Watson, there's only so much room in anybody's brain, including mine. And I therefore exclude any information that isn't relevant to uh, our work. And um, I knew a great deal about American political history and economics. Uh, it was probably, I don't know, I watched the quiz show Jeopardy with my husband. And if there were questions about music, I don't know any of the answers. If there were questions about history and politics, I generally do. So I focused, I don't get to read much fiction. I didn't then. I just spent all my energy and attention on politics and economics. And the other thing that I have been blessed with, I'm lucky to have a very good memory. I, I have a good memory for, for specifics. So having read things or heard things, I can recall them. Would you say that while you were building friendships? Way, that's particularly relevant in debate. I had a reputation and I think deserved as a good debater. And part of that is most people, when they argue, forget what they'd said previously. People have this great tendency to seize on a point because it helps them in the moment. But it may contradict something they said a couple of months ago, even a year or two ago. So in the Congress, I'm debating with the same group of people. And I remembered better than they did what they had said before. And being able to quote them against themselves because they would change their position depending, uh, uh, somebody had a great saying, uh, well, where you stand may depend on where you sit. That memory was very helpful as a debating technique. Hey everyone, just a gentle reminder that steamy episodes like this one and they're open to sponsorships. And this is one of the spots that you can get. To be honest, Steamy is not going to accept everyone because we want to make sure that your mission aligns with the interests of the Steamy community. So yes, dear listeners, I'm putting you first. But if you're interested, please do drop an email at sothismywai at gmail.com and let's start chatting. All right, now let's get back to this episode. Would you say, and this is before the Boston Globe article, that you were perhaps a bit too hard on people as well, do you feel, because you weren't out yet? I read somewhere that, that was, you felt that was the case. I know there are people who appear not to, there are gay people who are very closeted. And often people say, oh, they're so wrapped up in their work that they don't have any time for sexuality. They have no sexual feeling. I find that to be wholly untrue. Uh, what happens is there are people who repress it 
And when you repress those feelings, you get angrier. And there's no question, I was, uh, I was angry uh, at myself, but you know, you displace that. And uh, well, let me put it this way. As it began to leak out that I was gonna publicly declare that I was gay, I did it in 1987. I was one of the first political yeah. figures to do that voluntarily. The second, right? 1987, uh, in May of 87, Memorial Day, and um, American Memorial Day. And as it became clear to some people, some of my straight allies in Congress came to me and said, please don't make that announcement because it will diminish you. You are our ally and we don't want you to be pigeonholed as just all that gay guy. And I said, I understand that, but I, I can't, this is personal, I can't live this way. It, it's tearing me apart uh, to be hiding who I am and not have healthy emotional as well as physical relationships. And then after I came out, most of those same people said, well, glad you did, because you're, you're not angry anymore. You're, you're more relaxed. So clearly that, that was very helpful. Being out uh, makes you better. And I can think, I'm not going to give names, but I can think of a couple of prominent liberal figures whom I know uh, who, who were excessively nasty from time to time. And I think uh, closeted people, I think that's a part of it. Especially since, as I said, being effective in a legislature is an interpersonal business. So to the extent that you are dealing with your own anger at being closeted and denying yourself the right to live freely, that is particularly a handicap in trying to become popular with, with, with your peers. It took you 32 years to come out. Did you feel when that article came out that you were willing to give up your political career if that was what it took? Yeah, yeah, I reached a point I hoped I could survive. I wasn't uh, suicidal. I thought my get best guess was that I would survive with a diminished role, but but still the role. I was too pessimistic. It turns out it did not diminish my role at all. But I had reached a point where personally I, I couldn't stand it. In fact, look, there was a couple of years later, a uh, scandal broke where I had had a stupid relationship with a sex worker. And I was able then to explain, but that predated my coming out by seven years. But I said, that's an example of the way in which I dealt with these pressures. Being a prominent gay closeted politician, I simply, I had to make a choice. Either I was gonna have healthy emotional and physical relationships and be public about my being gay, or I was gonna conceal being gay and have to deal with my other needs in, in a clandestine and unhealthy way. And I just didn't want to do that anymore. I was very intrigued to learn that every election after you came out, you won by a wide margin. Why do you think that's the case? One, I'm a very good incumbent. I'm not a great first-time candidate. I get nervous in the first. In 1980, by the way, uh, I was apparently very nasty. And one of my best friends and campaign manager, Jim Siegel, said, at some point, the job became to keep me from having too much contact with individual voters because I would insult them. But um, as an incumbent, I liked the job of being a member of Congress. I was good at it. And part of what you do as a member of Congress, obviously, is to make national or broad public policy. But the other is to be an advocate for your particular constituency with federal agencies. And I was very good at that. I, I got a lot of things from my district, all of which they deserve. I also, what I found in politics is when you have a group that feels it's being treated unfairly, it's easier to uh, 
become their the sort. It's easier to get them to support you than if they're pretty happy with things. And I had uh, some groups of fishermen in the city of New Bedford, Portuguese Americans, Cape Verde Americans, that I thought were being unfairly treated in various ways. And by becoming their advocate, I met, for example, at an international conference a few years ago in Belarus. I met Jose uh, Barroso, who had been the president of the European Union, a prominent Portuguese politician. And I went up and introduced myself to him. I represented a large number of Portuguese Americans in southeastern Massachusetts. And as I introduced myself, he said, oh, I know you. You were a great friend of the Portuguese people in America. I ingratiated myself. In fact, in 19, in 2010, when I won my last race, it was tougher because I was getting blamed unfairly, but as a fact, for things that happened in the financial crisis, the Republican who I ran against, and I, I won 54% to 43%, a healthy margin, but not, not the 20 or more that I used to do. But he complained that when he went to people and said they shouldn't vote for me because I had done this or that wrong, sometimes they would say, well, I kind of agree with you. But he was very helpful. They would cite my constituency service. And I think that gave me, even though I would often take unpopular ideological positions, I was for legalizing marijuana, et cetera, uh, the world caught up with me. I think the extra benefit was my constituency service and my sympathy with the uh, groups that have been mistreated and my uh, alliance with them. Would you say that because you were closeted for so long, that allow you to be far more empathetic and therefore effective as a politician? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, when the Republicans finally took over in 1994 in the House of Representatives, having been in the minority for 40 years, and a lot of the Democrats were just stunned in the House because almost none of them had ever served in the minority, maybe none of them at all. And I didn't, I wasn't happy, but I was functional. And someone said to me, well, how, how come you seem to be less disoriented by this conversion from majority to minority status? And my answer was that being a gay left-handed Jew, I was pretty used to being in the minority and uh, I knew what that was like. So yeah, I think I always have. And the single biggest cause, if I had any year one wish, it would be to diminish the effect of racism in America. So before we go on to the financial reform, would you say, because I heard you say once that the average American then and even now weren't homophobic, though they thought he was supposed to be. Would you agree that still the case, even yeah, in spite in of Trump? In 1987, when I started to come out, we did a poll. And... Uh, what, it, what I found was twice as many people thought it would be a political liability for me to be honest about being gay as would personally be upset. That is, there was a perception, people who were not themselves gay thought everybody else was. And what happened is this, and it's very, very straightforward. Um, as gay people began to come out of the closet starting really in the 70s, more and more straight people learned who we were. People learned that they had lesbian and gay and bisexual cousins and teachers and clients and teammates and doctors and patients. And not only that, but we were, you know, if, if you're friendly with someone, if you feel kindly towards someone, and then you find out some fact about them, uh, that doesn't mean they did something terrible. Well, in what world do you then, oh, I used to really like you, but now that I know what you do 
for sex. I don't like you anymore. I mean, so, and that's one of the reasons why we have made much more progress in defeating homophobia than in defeating racism. Uh, every gay and lesbian person I know has a large number of straight relatives. Most black people do not have white relatives. Uh, you know, one of the problems races are much African-Americans have suffered much more than black people, than, than gay people, I believe in discrimination. But, but black teenagers had one advantage over gay teenagers. No black teenager has ever had to agonize about how to tell her parents that she's black. Uh, gay and lesbian, for gay and lesbian teens for years, not so much anymore, but that was a terrible ordeal. I wanted to talk about the Dodd-Frank Act. Could you sort of give us a broad overview of the context behind that coming into play? Yeah, give you a quick American history lesson. In our economy, what happens is this. Economic reality changes. And when it changes, the new reality has no rules to govern it because it's new. And without rules, bad things will happen as well as good things. And at some point after enough bad things have happened, the system responds by setting up rules. And so you have new rules now that govern the changes, but then a new set of changes comes. And once again, that outstrips regulation and you have to catch up. So there've been four cycles that I, I see we're actually, I think maybe in a fifth. In 1860, there were no national companies in America or in most of the world. Uh, and so from the late last half of the 19th century, as companies began to be national in scope, railroads and oil companies and others, they had no rules and they did some things that were abusive. So from the late 1890s through the early teens, Presidents Roosevelt and Wilson and even Taft put together rules. We created the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Reserve System, the Interstate Commerce Commission. In other words, a new set of rules at the national level, there were no national economic laws in 1870. There were a whole bunch by 1910. That, however, led to finance capitalism. We now have the stock market. So from the early 20th century into the 30s, you have an increasingly important stock market, but no rules. And that contributes to the depression. So Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal imposes rules for the stock market. Now that system, that regulated system works very well for 30 or 40 years until the 70s. And then another set of innovations come. First, technology. You could not have had the financial crisis, things like derivatives without computers. Couldn't have done that by hand. Secondly, a large amount of capital floods into America, mostly from Asia, uh, but also from oil producing companies. So there's all this capital around and the computers to deploy it. So this whole system of highly abstruse financing, credit default swaps, um, uh, mortgage-backed securities, that becomes a factor. And again, there's no rules for it. And finally, that causes a crash. So what we did in Dodd-Frank was just as Roosevelt did in the New Deal, or Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson did at the turn of the century, we created a set of rules for the contemporary situation. So we, we regulated mortgage financing. We regulated derivatives. We made them go on exchanges so you didn't have 
counterparties left unpaid. But we learned from previously, we also gave the regulators the power to deal with the next thing. We didn't know what it was. By definition, you don't know. It now turns out, by the way, uh, that that there, there is an innovation that's caused some trouble, but not nearly as much as in the past. And it's two things again. It's crypto and it's the ability with information technology to move your money from one bank to another in eight seconds. Um, so those two things have been destabilizing. But I will say this, because of what we did in 2010, we are much better able to deal with those things. The regulators have the power to deal with them. And, and here's the big difference, I'm just writing an article about this. In 2008, when we had a crisis, many financial institutions were insolvent because the quality of their assets was no good. They had made mortgage loans that weren't gonna be repaid. They had packaged derivatives that were gonna go uncompensated. We cleaned up that situation. In the current situation, there were liquidity problems because of the fears I believe about crypto and the ease with which you can move your money, but they're not solvency problems. Maybe yes, Silicon Valley Bank was insolvent. I know the bank I was on signature. We were never insolvent and no regulator said we were. So we did give the regulators the power and they did two things. First of all, they said they would temporarily guarantee deposits if a bank got in trouble. And secondly, they opened up a liquidity facility, which we'd authorize, um, so that banks are solvent but illiquid can get the money. So I think our system is working. That is, the last time around we got rid of the bad practices of mortgages that shouldn't have been made and overly leveraged and underfinanced derivatives. And we also gave the, which meant that when the current situation arose, the quality of the financial assets is much greater. You don't have a lot of crap on people's balance sheets. And secondly, we gave the combined regulators the power to deal with the situation. But what we did in 2010 was, and we waited way too long as a society, we fashioned new rules for the innovations that came in the 70s and 80s, and which while they were unregulated, led to problems. I mean, it makes perfect sense. You have the quality of assets, you're not illiquid, and then you have things like SVP. I wonder, looking at what's happened now, you wonder, is there anything more that you should have done with Dodd-Frank that could have helped to prevent this? Yeah, I, this is now the controversial thing. Given the uh, ease with which people can move deposits, the question is, should we, three times in American recent history, the federal regulators have temporarily guaranteed deposits above the 250,000. In 2008, the Fed did it. During the pandemic, I was reminded, the Fed did it again. And uh, now, you know, when you have done something three times because of a crisis, it's probably time to think about doing it permanently, not to have a crisis. Uh, the other argument is, well, no, if you increase, if you, if you guarantee deposits too high, people will not be careful about what bank they put their money in. But I think to tell a business person, in addition to making your product and selling your product, you have to become an expert in bank finance is too much. Yeah, a major corporation, Fortune 500, can hire some analysts. But if you're a small businessman, no, I don't see how you can keep tabs on, on the bank. And so what I would propose is 
not for personal accounts. We're not talking about the pocket money of millionaires. But if you are a business with a requirement for an ongoing payroll and paying vendors, you should be allowed to get a guarantee on the amount you need for those transactions for two months, transactional accounts, which is what we try to do in our bill. I think that's the one thing you need to do now. I don't see any other way to deal with this. Um, as I said, given the, uh, the the bank runs, it used to be a bank run, you had to go down to the bank and do it. Now it's now a, a bank wink. And I don't see how you can stop bank winks. That makes perfect sense because otherwise, you know, one company will have to split between many different banks. I should keep 200. Yeah, makes no sense. By the way, a million dollars personally, you go to four banks. What if you need uh, $10 million a month or 20? How many banks are you going to go to? 50, 60? You're imposing. And I know there are companies that are doing it for you, but that's imposing, it seems to me, an unnecessary transaction cost uh, and financial cost. You got to pay somebody to do that. What do you think are the biggest challenges in raising that cap? First of all, there's ideology on the right, which says, no, that's government interference. And it weakens the incentive for banks to be responsible. The argument is that you want depositors to be at risk for a certain percentage of their deposits, because that way they will be much more careful in monitoring the safety and soundness of the banks they choose. I think that's unrealistic and it's an excessive burden on them. There used to be a problem on the left who people said, well, they got that much money, they're on their own. But the leader of the left in financial issues is uh, Elizabeth Warren. And she has been very good about saying, yes, you got to take this. But I think Elizabeth Warren's articulation of that defeats the problem of the left. But the ops to go, you guys, look, in 2008, I tried to do that in my legislation or in our legislation. And in the House version, we did increase the level, the limit for transactional accounts. Actually, before our bill was 100,000, we got at least up to 250. But among, at that point, we ran into opposition from the left, although I said, thanks to Senator Warren's leadership, I don't think that's there anymore. But we ran into this ideological on the right in the Wall Street Journal last week, a leading conservative financial expert, Charles Calamiris, said, you'll destroy the discipline of banks if you increase the deposit guarantee. But then you also have one very influential group, Bank of America, Citicorp, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo, the biggest banks get a competitive advantage when there was no deposit guarantee, because even though they are not legally protected, logically, they are the least likely to fail. They are the least likely to have a run. So it's a combination now of conservative opposition and ideological opposition to deposit insurance, and the big banks want to keep a competitive advantage. You mentioned Senator Warren. She actually has said that, you know, the Dodd-Frank is to be blamed for what's happened because it was watered down. I believe you disagree with that, is that right? Yeah, as I look at what happened, um, the biggest thing we did in 2010 was to prohibit the practices that led to toxic assets. Nothing done since then, including in 2018, diminished that at all. As far as Signature Bank is concerned, where I was on the board, we were shut down by the initiative of the New York State regulators, not the federal regulators. The law she's talking about in 2018 does not affect that regulator. That was an amendment to federal law. So it clearly could not have been a factor because the people who shut us down had as much power before as after. 
what the 2018 law did was to reduce the reporting requirements that were mandatory. The bank regulators still had the power to act. And while I'm not closely familiar with Silicon Valley Bank, everything I read says that, yeah, the regulators were aware of problems. These were, remember, at first Donald Trump's regulators, but then then Joe Biden's. And the answer is that in Silicon, I, I don't understand what a stress test would have shown about Silicon Valley Bank that they didn't already know. And I think, again, it was the combination of the ease with which you can transfer bank deposits and the fears of unregulated or underregulated crypto. And I, those were in plain sight. I don't see what how either of those were concealed. Speaking of crypto and the ease of transfer of money, how can banks protect themselves from situations that we've seen so far? Because you've got social media that's hyping up all the fear and it seems to just going to, going to be continuing in the future. I think, look, Signature had done that. Our crypto involvement did not put us at risk. We did not have a lot invested in crypto ourselves. We didn't have a lot of crypto assets. What we had, we provided a platform so that if you were a customer of the bank and somebody else was a customer of the bank and you wanted to deal with each other in crypto, look, a bank's job is to facilitate those payments and we allowed it to happen. And I believe we were penalized, not because we had been put at risk by crypto, but simply because we would be involved. So I am afraid that, not necessarily afraid, I've never been a fan of crypto. I think if it disappeared tomorrow uh, or had never appeared in the first place, we'd be fine. Uh, but I think it's going to lead banks to be very, very wary of any any uh, crypto involvement, not just putting the, their own assets in, in the crypto, but even facilitating crypto transactions between others. Where do you think this banking crisis is heading? Well, it's not nearly as much of a crisis as it was. I think it's stabilizing already. Mm-hmm. You know, we're two, two weeks into this. In 2008, two weeks into the crisis, things were getting worse and worse and worse. Now things are stabilizing in the market and elsewhere. So I think what we are now going to have is a debate about how we deal with the volatility of deposits. What do you do about that? There's also going to be, I think, an increase in the regulation of crypto. By the way, much of the regulation of crypto comes not from the bank regulators, but from the securities regulators. The Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, I think they're going to have to tighten up the regulation of crypto. And I think until and unless crypto becomes much better regulated and people have more confidence, I think you're going to see them losing access, crypto assets losing access to the banking system and the debate going forward. Well, first, once that happens, a source of the deposit volatility will be diminished. Banks will steer clear of crypto. And secondly, there will have to be a policy debate. Uh, Some, Senator Warren and others, will be for increasing. By the way, again, we're talking about transaction accounts, not personal accounts. The question is, should we increase the deposit guarantee level for a transactional account? And if not, what are alternative ways of dealing with the volatility of deposits? That's a policy debate going forward. What are your thoughts on the 2024 U.S. presidential elections? I believe that Donald Trump is likely to be the Republican nominee, and he will lose. He's become... He reminds me now of an old fairy tale. 
Trumpelstiltskin, the little man who got angry and stamped his foot and made a big hole in the ground. He's the most self-destructive politician I have seen in a long time. And uh, ironically, I think the uh, criminal charges, especially if he's indicted, are going to help him win the Republican nomination. In fact, I think Governor DeSantis is probably very jealous because Trump is carving out this role for himself as the victim, the main target, a very articulate conservative American named William F. Buckley, long dead, talking about people in the 50s during the communist scare, said he thought one particular public figure who was jealous of one of his colleagues who had been accused because that enhanced his popularity, he said that the one who was not accused had subpoena envy. And I think uh, Ron DeSantis probably has subpoena envy vis-a-vis Trump. So I think Joe Biden will defeat Donald Trump. Now, there's one problem we have to address, and that is the inaccurate perception that that the Democrats have been soft on crime. We suffer because a fairly small percentage of Democrats have been, I think, quite irresponsibly talking about cutting back on policing, and a couple of cases, DAs have not done a good job of prosecuting. I think it's important for the president and other Democrats to make it clear that that is not the majority position. Personally, I think, interestingly, a good person to make that decision is I think that one of the highest ranking former prosecutors in American political history, Vice President Harris. She was a DA. And when she was DA of San Francisco, you didn't have these complaints that you had from one of our successors. So I, I, I'm in favor of seeing the vice president take lead and saying, this is, this is nonsense. We have been more supportive of the police. We're the ones who fund them. Uh, yes, we want them not to have bad relations. But by the way, cleaning up relations between the police and minority communities improves policing and safety. Because the, the less the minority community will cooperate with the police in telling them what's going on, uh, the less safe we are. But with all that together, I best guess, Donald Trump is the nominee and Joe Biden beats him. Fantastic. Barney, I have collected some questions from listeners of this podcast they would love to ask you. So three different people. The first is Aaron. Hi, Barney. My name is Aaron and I work at one of the crypto exchanges here in Asia. My question is, how can government regulators continue to encourage crypto innovation? Given how recently there seems to be open hostility towards crypto companies. I think the answer, well, it's a two-step process. First, there needs to be, not by the bank regulators as much, although partly from them, partly from the Federal Reserve, but the uh, securities regulators and others have to regulate crypto better. That is, they have to show that crypto is safer. The notion, for instance, the argument, oh, this crypto is is backed 100% in dollars. Well. Show me that. So it's a two-step process. Crypto has to be made safer for people and treated as a security to a great extent. And only when people in, have increased confidence in crypto will it, it be able to get, will I think the banks be able to re-engage with it. Hi, my name is Chen Ming, and I was a PhD student in political science at Duke University when the Dodd-Frank Act was making its way through Congress in 2010. My question to you comes in two parts. The first part is, given your reputation as somebody who wanted to have strong financial uh, regulation over the banks uh, after the 2008 subprime crisis, uh, do you think it was a mistake for you to then go on to take up the position of a directorship 
in a bank in 2015 after your retirement from Congress? No, um, let me say I, I want to broaden the potential liability. I went on three boards after leaving Congress that were uh, dealing with matters that I advocated for in Congress. I went on the board of Signature Bank. I went on the board of a company that wanted to sell marijuana. And I went on the board of a company that wanted to set up an exchange traded fund supportive of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender issues. Now, I was a, frankly more of an advocate for marijuana and LGBT rights than, than for banking. Should I have not tried to push those? I mean, here was a case where I was moving on, on things that I had worked on. As far as being a board member of a bank, let me first stress the, the argument that I, uh, I was not influenced in my position. And here's the deal. The one thing that I did, which was to say 50 billion as a trigger for increased scrutiny. Remember, the 50 billion trigger had nothing to do with the powers of the regulators, but with their discretion, whether they had to do certain things. But it didn't regulate, it, it did not relax the prohibitions on bad mortgages or unfunded credit default swaps. But when I first said 50 billion was too low, it was, I had never heard of Signature Bank. Uh, I began to say that in 2012 and 13. I didn't, I didn't even know about Signature Bank until uh, a couple of years later. Uh, and I quote Sheila Bear, who was one of the toughest bank regulators. She went on the board, having been head of the FDIC, of Santander. And someone asked her how she could justify having been a tough regulator and now being on a bank board. And she said, oh, is it your position? that nobody who believes in regulation should be on a board. Uh, I disagree with that. I don't wanna say that, uh, and, and I, I defy anyone to show that in any way my position when I was on the bank was influenced by a hope on a board, I never thought about that, or that anything I did as a bank uh, a board member was in any way inconsistent with what I advocated as a, uh, a member. By the way, let me make one point. People said, well, why did you have those 2018 amendments at all? I welcome the chance to say this. Here's what happened. In 2013, 14, 15, some of the Democratic senators who had voted for Dodd-Frank were getting political pressure from the smaller banks and the regional banks who said too much paperwork. They didn't like the whole bill. And some of them said to each other, you know, we could lose over this. So there was a as long as Obama was president or if Hillary Clinton was president, people didn't have to worry about too much of a weakening of the bill because it would be vetoed. But when Donald Trump got elected in 2017, there became a fear that enough Democrats would be pressured in the Senate because they had the votes in the House to make a substantial rollback in the powers that the regulators had because so many Democratic senators, eight or 10 would have been enough would have been pressured to vote for it. So there was an effort with the Democratic senators and some sympathetic outsiders to come up with some pressure valves that would undo the pressure to make major cutbacks in Dodd-Frank by cutting back on some of the things that we didn't think would be harmful. And I think that, that paid off. By the way, the conservative Republicans who were opposed to bank regulation of the sort we did understood that. And in the House, where the conservative Republicans were in charge, they didn't want to pass those 2018 amendments 
they were dragging them, they were blocking them in the house until the bank said, no, you're supposed to be our friends. Please don't do that. Do you think it was a mistake for you to support the partial repeal of the Dodd-Frank Act? No, yeah. because it didn't repeal any of the important pieces. It did not reinstate the ability to do anything they shouldn't do. I can guarantee you that it had nothing to do with signature. And I don't see how the fact that they didn't have to do stress tests. By the way, they could have ordered stress tests if they wanted to. They just didn't have them automatically, the regulators. But I don't see how the absence of a stress test in 2021, even 22, would have showed you the problem in Silicon Valley. Maybe that's, if there is some aspect of Silicon Valley's ultimate failure that would have been uncovered by a stress test or other monitoring that was changed by 2018, I need someone to show it to me. The other thing I should say, by the way, I did not want Silicon Valley. I, I did support a change, but I wanted to go from 50 billion to 150. It went to 250, because a very powerful Republican, Richard Shelby, since retired from Alabama, wanted to do this for Regents Bank in Alabama. So I, in fact, if I had my way, Silicon Valley would have been covered. But even with that, I don't, I, no one has showed me what it was about Silicon Valley that would have been uncovered that wasn't already known. Hi, my name is Dylan. And my question is, do you think the fast raising the interest rates affected Signature Bank? Was Signature Bank not prepared for the hiking rates and is the feds to be blamed and the next question is if you do believe crypto was the reason why signature bank was shut down what is the plan of action that signature bank is going to take against the fdic oh i the chances by the way proof of, of my evidence for my argument is that the bank that was uh given in effect the uh the remains of Signature got everything except crypto. The New York Community Bank, I think it's called Flagstar now, they took over essentially everything at the Signature Bank except crypto. I mean, I, that's a demonstration that that was the uh, only problem. The question is, what action are we going to take against the FDIC? Uh, I don't plan to take any. I think there's so much discretion given the likelihood of any successful lawsuit. I'm, I'm skeptical. So I, I am not aware of any action. But we're going to take. I regret it. Obviously, I think it was unfair. By the way, it was not so much the FDIC as the New York State regulator. I think if you look at it, Signature does not compare so unfavorably with First Republic as to justify Signature being shut down and First Republic being helped to stay alive. The difference is not between the two banks, but between their two state regulators. The California regulator did not do the First Republic what the New York state regulator did to us. I think that's the, uh, and by the way, I will say this without any question. If the two things that the federal regulators announced on Monday had been announced on Friday, a liquidity facility and a backup of deposits, signature would be going on fine right now. There wouldn't have been any trouble. Secondly, if they had let us open on Monday and get the benefit of those two announcements, signature would still be functioning. That's Another those reasons together are why I think it was a New York very latest decision to tell people to uh, not get involved with crypto. That was what, what killed us. Barney, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Oh, good questions. Thank you. Thank you. Can I wrap up with three final ones I ask every single guest of mine? 
The first is, do you feel like you have found your why? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it was to, for me, it was to use the talents I have in a way that made the world a, a fairer place. I have always wanted to end discrimination and poverty and increase freedom. Yeah, I think I've had a pretty good shot at that. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Uh, the legacy of someone who is smart enough not to answer that question. <laughs> and what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Oh, well, it depends because I don't think we choose our, well, it depends on what, I, let me put it this way. I think you should assess your strengths and weaknesses. And if you can, get into a uh, line of work an activity which favors your strengths and where your weaknesses are not a problem. I think because I, I, there's not one set of talents. There are talents for some things and not for others. There are the talents to be a doctor, talents to be an automobile mechanic, talents to be a whole lot of things, a teacher. There are very important things that one can do to advance the common welfare. And uh, they call on different sets of talents. And the first step is to assess your own strengths and weaknesses, and then if you can go into the area of helping others, which plays to the strengths and minimizes the weaknesses. And that was the end of episode 117. The show notes and transcript can be found at sodismawai.com forward slash 117. And do stick around for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting one of Malaysia's most well-known OG entrepreneurs. He went from being one of the worst in English at Cornell to coincidentally joining the startup world, being promoted to COO despite never managing anyone before and turning around a Taiwanese company that was losing $1 million to making $8,000 in profits in eight months. It's a great story, so do stick around. Check out the other past episodes in the meanwhile and see you next Sunday.